recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogeny Rontachu. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. I, I had a, um, an enjoyable two weeks at the homes of, um, well, well, I stopped by Furlins in Pennsylvania, and I stopped at, and spent several days with Cliffs and Emmerheiser, and then I went on to see Mike Delaney of profink.org and his wonderful family. And then I went back to Clifton's for, for another weekend of, of, of programs last weekend and stopped and saw Matthew and Cheryl on the way back. Cheryl is um, keeping her head up and combating her illness, and she'll be in our prayers. Tonight is Friday, August, no, August, right? May 11th, 2012. I'm trying to rush the year along, right? And tonight we will present the Epistle of Jude. This name is actually Judas or Judas, the Greek form of Judah, which in Hebrew is Yehuda, as it is evident in the genealogies given in Matthew and Luke. Aside from the patriarch, there were two men in the New Testament associated with Christ who had this name of Judas. And others who also bore it were also mentioned. Attempting to distinguish these men is sometimes difficult, and therefore this epistle was entitled Jude rather than Judas in the, in the King James Version of the Bible. Although where he is mentioned in Scripture, he is indeed Judas. And the spelling is the same as that given also for the infamous apostle Judas Iscariot. Eusebius, who wrote about 330 AD, Eusebius doubted the canonicity of the epistle of Jude. Eusebius's ecclesiastical history at 614 discusses the work of the earlier Clement of Alexandria. And Eusebius states of Clement that, and I quote, in the work called Hippotyposis, to sum up the matter briefly, he gave us abridged accounts of all the canonical scriptures, not even omitting those that are disputed. I mean, meaning Eusebius, the book of Jude and the other general epistles. Unfortunately, and I've read all of Eusebius's ecclesiastical histories, and so far as I have noticed, Eusebius does not elaborate to tell us why these epistles were disputed. And he disputed to Peter and, and, and the epistle to the Hebrews. Fragments of the work of Clement, Alexand Clement of Alexandria found in the writings of Cassiodorus show that Clement esteemed the epistle of Jude to be canonical on other occasions as well as those cited by Eusebius and he even quoted it at length, along with some commentary. Clement also quoted and cited Jude in both his pedagogus, which means the instructor, and in his elucidations. Irenaeus, who was also quite early, he was, he was a um, Christian bishop in Gaul of the second century. Irenaeus does not mention Jude by name, so far as I've seen, but he clearly quotes verse 7 of this epistle in chapter 36, 
of the fourth book of his work called Against Heresies. And he quotes verse 3 elsewhere in fragments which are attributed to him. Polycarp, another writer earlier than Eusebius, also quoted Jude verse 3 in his epistle to the Philippians. Tertullian, another Christian bishop of the late 2nd century AD, Tertullian both quotes and alludes to Jude over a hundred years before Eusebius's expressions of doubt, as do Hippolytus and Ovation and several other early Christian writers, all of them esteeming the epistle of Jude to be legitimate. Origen, another writer of the, I believe the second century, he may have been of the third, in his second book of the commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 10, said of Jude that, and I quote, he wrote a letter of few lines, but filled with the healthful words of heavenly grace, referring to this very epistle. So it is clear that while Eusebius and others may have at a late time doubted the veracity of Jude nearly three centuries after it was written, the early Christian writers did not doubt the canonicity, the veracity of the epistle of Jude. They esteemed it to be inspired and canonical and authentic. The epistle of Jude is attested to in ancient manuscripts by the codices, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, and Ephraimi Siri, all of which are from the 4th and 5th centuries, and also by at least two ancient papyri, both of which date to as early as the 3rd century, which have been discovered by archaeologists. Aside from Eusebius's hearsay, and I call it hearsay because he never gave reason for doubting the authenticity of the epistle, aside from Eusebius's hearsay, there is no reason at all to doubt the veracity of the epistle of Jude. And with that, we will present the epistle itself. From verse 1, Jude, or Judah in the Christogenian New Testament, servant of Yahshua Christ and brother of Jacobus, or, or James, to those beloved by the Father, by Father Yahweh, even the chosen being preserved by Yahshua Christ. Mercy to you and peace and love be multiplied. Jude, Jude calls himself the brother of James, or Jacobus. In the New Testament, there were two men named Jacob, as we commonly know the name, the Greek form of it, or James, if you prefer, who were associated with Christ. Many commentators claim that there were three men of that name associated with Christ. I, I, don't, I, I no longer accept that. The first James mentioned in the Gospels is the son of Zebedee, and the brother of John, for which see Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. He was slain by Herod, as recorded in Acts chapter 12, in or around 44 AD. This here, James, is the son of Alphaeus. He's mentioned along with his brother Jude in Luke chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. And he is the Lord's brother, as we see it, in Galatians chapter 1, 
verse 19. He is also the son of Mary, the mother of Christ, and he is the brother of Joseph, mentioned at Matthew 13.55 and Matthew 27.56. Some commentators call this James the brother of Jude the Greater. However, Scripture calls him James the Less, as the King James Version has it in Mark chapter 15, verse 40. Some commentators believe that Mark 15.40 must refer to the son of Zebedee, where in fact it refers to the son of Alphaeus, for only he was the brother of Jude and of Joseph and the half-brother of Christ. So we see that Jude, while he here calls himself only a servant and not a brother of Christ, is indeed also that Jude of the Gospels who is the brother of Christ through a common mother, Mary. Catholics, of course, would reject that, but that's, that's the scripture. Matthew 13, 55. Is this not the son of a craftsman? Is his mother not called Mary, Mariam, and his brothers, Jacobus and Joseph, or Joseph, and Simon, and Judah, or Judah? So we see right there that we have James and Judah as brothers, and they are the sons of Mary. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Is this not the son of the craftsman, the son of Maria, the brother, and the brother of Jacob and Joseph and Judah and Simon? And are his brethren not here with us? And they were offended by him. Luke 6, verses 14 through 16, naming the 12 apostles, Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Jude, the brother of James, meaning Jude, the brother of James, who is the son of Alphaeus, and Judas Iscariot, who had become a traitor. That Jude and James, the brothers of Yahshua, had been proclaiming the gospel after the resurrection is evident in Paul's epistles at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. There we see the term brethren used in the close familial sense, distinguished from the rest of the apostles and Cephas, quote-unquote. Therefore, there is no reason to doubt that the writer of this epistle is our apostle, the brother of James, and the half-brother of the Christ. Jude is writing to those beloved by God the Father, and therefore demonstrates that it is not what men choose that prevails, but whom God chooses, they prevail. Malachi 1.1, the burden of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith Yahweh, yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith Yahweh, yet you say, wherein hast thou, I'm sorry, saith Yahweh, yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Jude is also writing to the chosen being preserved by Yahshua Christ. But these are not different people from those beloved by God the Father. 
And Yahweh's love is only expressed, as we have just seen in Malachi. In the Old Testament, it's only expressed in reference to the children of Israel. As we've explicitly seen in Malachi. You won't find it mentioned in the Old Testament towards any other people. Jude is also writing to the chosen, being preserved by Yahshua Christ, but these are not different people from those people whom Yahweh loves. Rather, the two phrases are intended to describe the same people. It may have been written in this manner, to those who are beloved by God the Father and who are chosen, being preserved by Yahshua Christ. Which read word for word is not as literal, but which certainly reflects Jude's intentions accurately. Only the children of Israel have all of those promises found in the Old Testament of salvation, and therefore only the children of Israel can be the chosen being preserved by Yahshua Christ. As these things were all defined by God long in advance. The New Testament is, as it explicitly states, the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah chapter 43, from verse 11. I, even I am Yahweh, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed when there was no strange God among you, therefore you are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, that I am God. Yeah, before the day was, in other words, before Christ actually comes. Yeah, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that could deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Thus saith Yahweh, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon, meaning to captivity, and have brought down all their nobles and the Chaldeans, whose cry is in the ships, I am Yahweh, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. These things, these promises of salvation, of deliverance, of rulership, they can't be extended to anybody outside of the explicit words of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 45 from verse 15. Verily thou art a God that hides thyself, O God, of Israel the Savior. They shall all be ashamed and also confounded, all of them. They shall all go into confusion together that are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved in Yahweh with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed nor confounded, world without end. For thus saith Yahweh that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he that established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret, meaning that there are no promises beyond these promises which are plainly uttered in the Old Testament. In a dark place of the earth, I said, not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, Yahweh, speak righteousness, I declare things that are right. These promises, 
those people who are chosen being preserved, they can only refer to the physical, literal children of Israel of that Old Testament. It is important for us to realize who they are. And none of them are Jews, as we shall see. Jude verse 3, Beloved, making all haste to write to you concerning our common salvation, I had necessity to write to you encouraging you to contend once for all for the faith having been delivered to the saints. We will define that word saints. We will find that the faith was never delivered to Negroes and Chinamen. That's utterly absurd in the context of Scripture. And here's the reason. Jude Jude verse 4. For some men have stolen in, those of old, having been written about before time for this judgment, godless men, substituting the favor of our God for licentiousness. I would call encouraging people to sleep with Negroes. I would call that licentiousness. And denying our only master and prince, Yahshua Christ. The last phrase of verse 4 reads exactly like 1 Enoch 48, verses 9 and 10, speaking of the wicked. Here it shall be quoted from the R.H. Charles edition. And I will give them over into the hands of mine elect. This is the day of vengeance. As straw in the fire, so shall they burn before the face of the holy. As lead in the water, shall they sink before the face of the righteous. And no trace of them shall be found any more. Arise ye on and thresh, Micah chapter 4. And on a day of their affliction, there shall be rest on the earth. And before them they shall fall and not rise again. And there shall be no one to take them with his hands and raise them. For they have denied the Lord of Spirits and his anointed. The name of the Lord of Spirits be blessed. That is the future of those who deny to Christ. That's the future of those men who have stolen in, those of old. That's important. We'll explain that later. Having been written about before time for this judgment, that's where it's written. It's written in Enoch. Substituting the favor of our God for licentiousness and denying our only master and prince, Yahshua Christ. Here, Jude associates the false teachers with those godless men of old, just as Peter also did in 2 Peter, especially at verses 1 through 3, where he says that for whom from of old their judgment is not idle and their destruction does not sleep. This is one reason, I am persuaded, that why, As long ago as Eusebius' time, certain men wanted to get rid of these epistles. There were certain men in the 4th century, as Christianity was becoming legalized, as Christianity was becoming accepted by the Roman government, there were some men that wanted to get rid of these uncomfortable epistles, especially Jude and 2 Peter. Likewise, Paul associates the deception of Christians with that serpent of old. 
at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where he states that, but I fear, lest in any way, as the serpent had thoroughly beguiled Eve in his villainy, your thoughts would be corrupted from that sincerity and that purity which is with the anointed. It is not by chance that the apostles used such illustrations to convey these things, since they are fully corroborated as literal truths in many other places in Scripture. Jude mentions our common salvation. For salvation is shared by all of those of our race, as long as we are, as Jude defines it, the chosen being preserved by Yahshua Christ. If indeed we are the children of Israel, and if we are, then it is our Christian duty to contend once for all for the faith having been delivered to the saints. Because those who would lead us into apathy, atheism, and licentiousness are the enemies of God, who not only reject him, but never had any part with him in the first place. From Psalm 37, verse 28. For Yahweh loves judgment and forsakes not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The seed, the children of the wicked, shall be cut off. Exterminationism. The word saint first appears in Deuteronomy chapter 33, where it is also defined, and I quote from verse 2, And he said, Yahweh came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints. Very much like Jude verse 14, which we will see shortly. From his right hand went a fiery law for them, yeah, he loved the people, the people of Israel. They are his saints. All his saints are in thy hand, and they sat down at thy feet. Everyone shall receive of thy words. The word saint is Strong's Hebrew Dictionary, number 6944 in the Old Testament. The word is kodesh, and it means apartness, holiness, sacredness, or separateness. The term was used of the children of Israel because of the commandment at Exodus chapter 19, where I will read from verse 5. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, words quoted by Peter in his epistles. These are the words which thou, shalt, which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. We see these ideas repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 7 from verse 6. For thou art a holy people unto Yahweh thy God, and Yahweh thy God has chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Yahweh did not set his love upon you, now, I had previously said that Yahweh only expresses love for the children of Israel everywhere in Scripture. 
Yahweh did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. The words rendered holy in these passages are from another Hebrew word related to Kodesh and similarly defined. The equivalent Greek word most often employed in the New Testament and by the translators of the Septuagint is hagios. Hagios is used all the time to translate Kodesh. And it means separated and dedicated to the purposes of God. All of these terms can only refer to the children of Israel, and therefore no one else could ever participate in the benefits of that relationship which they have with God. This is something that even many Christian identists miss, that when the children of Israel were chosen by God to carry on his will in the world, they were a very small people. The Hebrew people were an insignificant people in the eyes of the mighty Assyrians and the Persians and the Egyptians and many much larger Adamic white nations. All of those nations have since fallen by the wayside. They've all been lost to the black pit of race mixing which has infested our history these last 5,000 years. Whether it be voluntary or involuntary race mixing, you cannot identify a white Egyptian in the world today, but at one time, Egypt was a mighty white nation. You cannot identify a white Persian or a white Assyrian in the world today, but at one time, they were mighty white nations. Jude, verse 5. But I desire to remind you, you all knowing that once for all, the prince, having delivered the people from the land of Egypt, the second time destroyed those not believing. When Jude refers to the second time, he refers to those who fell in the desert. The first time that the impious of our Adamic race were destroyed was in the days of Noah at the flood. So here he says, the second time, he destroyed those not believing. Here we also see that Jude indirectly defines for us what is meant by all in the scripture, saying that once for all, the prince, having delivered the people from the land of Egypt, he informs us that all means all of Israel, which is the context of the entire scripture. Here it is also evident that obedience was certainly perceived as being a result of one's faith. Verse 6, And the messengers, not having kept their first dominion, but having forsaken their own habitation, are kept under darkness in everlasting bindings for the judgment of the great day. From 1 Enoch, chapter 12. And I quote, Enoch, thou scribe of righteousness, go, declare to the watchers of the heaven, who have left the high heaven, the holy eternal place, and have defiled themselves with women, and have done as the children of the earth do, 
and have taken unto themselves wives, you have wrought great destruction on the earth. There are many other portions of one Enoch which also offer relevant citations. While there are many commentators who would point to the events of Genesis chapter 6 as what is being referred to here, and that is not wrong, they are not necessarily limited to that. The events of Genesis chapter 3, which caused the original fall of Adam, also must be considered, especially since in Revelation chapter 12, Christ himself equates the fallen angels with that old serpent. From Revelation chapter 12, and I quote, And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his messengers, or angels, fighting with the dragon, and the dragon fought, and his angels. And they did not prevail, nor was their place found any longer in heaven. And the great dragon had been cast down, that serpent of old, the serpent of Genesis chapter 3. It has to be. Show me another serpent of old, who is called the false accuser and the adversary, or the devil and Satan. He who deceives the whole inhabited earth had been cast into the earth, and his messengers, or his angels, had been cast down with him. This event, described in Revelation, had to take place in the distant past. First, this same dragon is described in Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 through 18, as having persecuted the woman and attempting to kill the Christ child. Again, this dragon is equated to the serpent in that passage. And it is seen that afterwards, the dragon went to make war with the woman, which is the continued fulfillment of the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, as forewarned in Genesis 3.15. The dragon the serpent, the angels that sinned, the adversary or Satan, the false accuser or devil, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They are all epithets for this same entity, this same race called angels and their descendants. Jude 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities around them in like manner with them, meaning with those angels, committing fornication and having gone after different flesh, are set forth an example, undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Where Jude says, as Sodom and Gomorrah, the apostle equates, he says, as Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's go back and see verse 6. And the messengers, or the, and the angels, not having kept their first, their first dominion, but having forsaken their own habitation, are kept under darkness in everlasting bindings for the judgment of the great day. And then verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in like manner with them, committing fornication and having gone after different flesh, are set forth an example undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. 
Where Jude says, as Sodom and Gomorrah, the apostle equates the acts of the fallen angels to those of these Canaanite cities. Where he says, in like manner with them, he tells us that the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities did these things along with the fallen angels. This can only be because the Kenites, who are descended from Cain, and the serpent of Genesis chapter 3, one of the fallen angels, that old serpent, and the Rephaim, who are the children of the giants. That's what the word Rephaim describes. That's what the word means. The only way Sodom and Gomorrah could have done these things along with the fallen angels can only be because the Kenites and the Rephaim of Genesis chapter 15, who were descended from the fallen angels, and were also mixed in with the Canaanites of those cities, as we see in Genesis chapter 15, were mixed in with them, as well as the rest of the Canaanites of Palestine. The end for all of them is the lake of fire of the Revelation in Matthew chapters 13 and 25, where we see that they are the tares and they are the goats. They're not the only goats, but they are the goats of the respective parables. Likewise, 1 Enoch chapter 10 verse 13 tells us of the coming judgment of the fallen angels that in those days they shall be led off to the abyss of fire. We find the lake of fire in 1 Enoch chapter 10, and it's designated for those same people that we find in Matthew chapter 25, in the Revelation, in Matthew 13, and in other New Testament scriptures. Here in Jude 7, Jude defines fornication as race mixing, having gone after different flesh. That's the only honest way that one can interpret the pursuit of different flesh. I understand the King James Version has strange flesh. That word strange in the Greek is the word heteros. We see heteros in the word, the modern word heterosexual. We see homos, its antonym, in the modern word homosexual. Homos means to be like or equal to. Heteros means to be other or different. This is not strange flesh. This is, it, it may be in the 16th century vernacular of the King James writers. This is different flesh. It's different flesh from yours. As Adam had Eve as his wife, and Eve was flesh of his flesh and bones of his bones. You can't be married to somebody with different flesh. You can't be married because you're not married. You're committing fornication. You're not really married. You may think you're married. In the eyes of God, you're committing fornication. That is wicked. There are at least three other biblical witnesses to this definition of fornication. They are Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 
verse 8, where he refers to the same, to, to the incident with the men of Israel and the daughters of Moab. And Paul calls that fornication using the same Greek word. The revelation in chapter 2, verse 14, where the same incident is referred to with the same language, the, sa the same incident which Paul describes is referred to with the same language, which is also associated with the doctrine of Balaam. And then in Paul's letters again, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, Paul called the race-mixing Esau, Esau took Canaanite wives, remember? Paul calls him a fornicator, using a form of the same Greek word once again. The churchmen, they confuse fornication with adultery or homosexuality, yet they cannot be the same in the eyes of the apostles, since in Scripture on various occasions, those ideas are mentioned together in the same verses. For instance, at Galatians 5.19, where, where homosexuality and fornication and adultery are all mentioned, and, and the separate words describe them. Colossians 3.5, Acts chapter 15, verses 20 and 29. All these things are distinguished in those passages. Here I would like to quote Tobit. Tobit chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And I quote, Beware of all whoredom. This is Tobit's father talking to him. Beware of all whoredom, my son, and chiefly, Take a wife of the seed of thy fathers, and take not a strange woman to wife, which is not of thy father's tribe. For we are the children of the prophets, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, my son, that our fathers from the beginning, even that they all married wives of their own kindred, and were blessed in their children, and their seed shall inherit the land. Now therefore, my son, love thy brethren, and despise not in thy heart thy brethren, the sons and daughters of thy people, in not taking a wife of them. For in pride is destruction and much trouble, and in lewdness is decay and great want. For lewdness is the mother of famine. The Greek word, whoredom, here in Tobit, is the same Greek word, pornaya, which the King James Version often rendered fornication. Tobit tells us not only not to commit fornication, Tobit also tells us that when we do commit fornication, it is tantamount to hating our own people. Jude verse 8. Whereas, likewise also, these dreamers, he's talking about those same people. He's talking about those same people of old, those men of old who have crept in surreptitiously into our congregations. They've done it then. They've done it now. They are the topic all throughout Jude. Whereas, likewise also, these dreamers indeed defile the flesh, while they reject authority and they blaspheme honor. Yet Michael, the chief messenger or the chief angel, when contending with the devil, he argued over the body of Moses, did not venture to bring a judgment for blasphemy, 
But he said, the prince should censure you, or the Lord should censure you. The exclamation, the prince should censure you, as it appears in the Christogenian New Testament, is due to the optative mood of the verb. Therefore, we see the word should here, which is employed to express, to express a wish or a desire. The optative mood is pretty rare in the New Testament. It only appears about 38 times, and most of them seem to be in Paul's letters, especially where he says, God forbid. A very similar exclamation appears in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2, and I will quote it. And Yahweh said unto Satan, Yahweh rebukes thee, O Satan. Even Yahweh that has chosen Jerusalem rebukes thee. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Michael is, of course, mentioned in Daniel chapters 10 and 12, and in Revelation chapter 12. The name means, who is like God? And here it refers to a definite individual. There is no doubt. This is not a prophetic statement by Jude. Jude is making a historical statement where he says that Michael, the chief angel, when contending with the devil, he argued over the body of Moses, but did not bring a judgment for blasphemy. The only other ancient, or perhaps not so ancient, extant, meaning that it, it's around today, mention of a story concerning the body of Moses is found in a book entitled The Assumption of Moses, which was translated by R.H. Charles in the very late 19th century. The Assumption of Moses, I found it on Google Books several years ago. It may still be around in, in PDF format. It was free. R.H. Charles estimates the Assumption of Moses to have been written in the first century A.D. I certainly, for my part, do not accept that book to be authentic because, among other reasons, it employs the Masoretic text chronology, which anybody who understands ancient history can recognize as being in error, and it dates the death of Moses to exactly 2,500 years from the creation of Adam, which is quite contrary to the Masoretic chronology, the, the Septuagint chronology, which is that the Septuagint chronology is much more agreeable to history. The Assumption of Moses also employs that false Jew-Gentile terminology that we do not find in the Old Testament, except perhaps in the Book of Esther, and in later works of the Pharisees, and, of course, their modern Christian followers. The Assumption of Moses states that the purpose of God's selection of Israel was to convict the nations, which is certainly not true. Many commentators claim that Jude was referring to this work for which there is no actual basis. There was no Assumption of Moses. In Deuteronomy chapter 34, we, we read at verse 5, So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of Yahweh. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor. And no man knows of his sepulcher unto this day. There was no assumption of Moses, for the scripture plainly states that he was buried 
in the land of Moab. It is much more likely that Jude was citing an older and now lost record of some other event. It is also possible that Jude is referring not to the actual flesh of Moses, but rather he may have been referring to the Hebrew law, to the Torah, if I must, to the Pentateuch as the body of Moses. Especially since, examining Jude's words here, the charge indicated for the guilt was blasphemy and is related by Jude to the rejection of authority and not to the defilement or theft of a corpse. Jude's statement here may very well be allegorical. The body of Moses may very well be our Old Testament books known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, which we know and which Christ attests Moses had written. Jude verse 10. But these indeed blaspheme, these indeed, he's referring to those same people, but these indeed blaspheme whatever they do not know. Yet whatever is natural they understand like irrational beasts. By these things they destroy themselves. The subject of Jude's diatribe is still those some men who have stolen in those of old having been written about before time for this judgment, godless men, as Jude describes them in verse 4. They are the subject of Jude's entire discourse. And we see that he means those outsiders who have infiltrated the congregations of Israel. Peter, in chapter 2, at verse 12, of his second epistle, refers to these same men where he says that these, and I quote, having been born as natural, irrational animals into destruction and corruption shall also perish. The King James words it differently. The King James has natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. These words can describe all of the aliens among the white race today. And they reflect the attitude that Christians should have towards those who are not of our kind. You're an Adamic man or you're a beast. There is no crossing the line from righteousness to unrighteousness. There's no crossing the line from unrighteousness into righteousness. It's just not possible. It's not what the scripture says. One is born righteous. One is born from of God, as the apostle John says in the fourth chapter of his first epistle. Or one is born of the world, as the apostle also states. If you're born from of God, you cannot sin your seed is in you. In other words, sin won't be attributed to you. 
as Paul also attests. Blessed is he to whom sin is not imputed in Romans. That's the promise that the children of Israel have. That's why all Israel shall be saved. In respect of this, Paul says at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die. It's stupid to teach the account of the cross. It's stupid to teach the gospel to non-Israelites. It's stupid to teach the gospel to Jews or to non-whites. That's the bottom line. The account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die. But to those who are being preserved, to us, as Paul states, it is the power of Yahweh. There's no crossing the lines. The lines are genetic. You're born of God or you're born of the world. As Christ says in John chapter 3, unless a man is born from above, he shall not see the kingdom of God, period. In the book of Jeremiah, especially in Jeremiah chapter 2, we see that the people of Judah were chastised by God for race mixing. Yahweh exclaims in verse 13 of that chapter of Jeremiah, and I quote, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Then Yahweh goes on to explain in Jeremiah chapter 2, and I'll quote verses 21 and 22, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith Yahweh God. Race mixing is the sin that cannot be cleansed. Now this problem went back to Judah himself. Since, as Malachi records, Judah had married the daughter of a strange god. Malachi 2.11. And therefore, with the progeny of Shoah, Judah's half-Canaanite son, from the earliest times, there were Canaanites who had a claim to be of Judah. Now, there are precautions here. While it is also evident in Scripture that many of the children of Israel, of the northern tribes, of the ten tribes, had at various times mixed with the Canaanites, from the time of the divided kingdom, the children of Israel went off into paganism, and therefore they had no part in the early corruption of the body of Moses which can refer to the laws of our God as they were kept in the temple at Jerusalem in Judah. Now, Jeremiah showed us chapter 24 of his prophecy. In chapter 24 of his prophecy, the prophecy of the good and the bad figs, how Yahweh had separated the tribes of Judah, the Canaanites, and those who infiltrated Judah how he had separated the good figs 
and the bad figs of Judah during the Babylonian captivity. However, the bad figs never lost their purported identity as Judah. And added to these bad fig Jews were the Edomites, who were subjected by the Maccabees in the 2nd century A.D., where from that time all of Edom was converted to the religion of Judea and purported to be Judah. They claimed to be Judeans. They claim that to this very day. Paul distinguishes the Israelite vessels of mercy and the Edomite vessels of destruction in Romans chapter 9. Here, Judy equates these infiltrators, those who have stolen in, those men of old, who were the blasphemers of Yahweh. He equates them with animals, which is exactly what they are if they do not have that spirit, and they do not, that spirit which Yahweh imparted to the Adamic race. And this is why several times in the Bible, the non-Adamic peoples, anybody who is not an Adamite, anybody who is not a pure son of Adam, to behemoth or to beasts, and several times in Scripture, non-Adamic peoples are indeed likened to beasts. If one does not have the spirit of Yahweh, which was imported to the, imparted to the Adamic race, one is a beast, but certainly not one of the beasts of God's creation. Rather, it is evident that these beasts were the product of race mixing, a violation of God's law, and we cannot blame God for the sins of man. Jude verse 11. Woe to them, because they have gone in the way of Cain, and in deception... They pour forth of the wages of Balaam and are destroyed in the disputation of Korah. The way of Cain and the wages of Balaam have everything to do with race. Now many may dispute that statement concerning Cain. However, where the way of Cain is equated to the gainsaying of Korah, it may be demonstrated that this is indeed true. The gainsaying of Korah is described in Numbers chapter 16. Korah was a Levite. He was a cousin of Moses and Aaron. However, he insisted on performing priestly duties. That's the key here to understanding the, the way of Cain and the gainsaying of Korah. Korah insisted on performing priestly duties which Yahweh had prescribed for the sons of Aaron alone. And concerning the offerings, they were a function reserved specifically for the descendants of Aaron's son, Eleazar, who, with the death of his elder brothers, had obtained the position of firstborn in Aaron's family. So Korah insisted upon making sacrifices which he had no right to perform. Likewise, Cain made a sacrifice. And Cain's sacrifice was rejected by Yahweh. We see with the sacrifice of Cain that Abel was also making a sacrifice. And Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God. 
since the eldest son is traditionally the family priest, and that can be established in Scripture, Exodus chapter 4, chapter 13, Numbers chapter 3, 12 through thir- verses 12 through 13. Since the eldest son is traditionally the family priest, it may seem that Cain should have been doing the sacrificing and not Abel, if indeed Cain was Adam's true son. Abel challenged Cain. Abel made a sacrifice, and Abel prevailed, Because Abel was indeed Adam's firstborn son. Cain was a product of fornication, that old serpent. Such is why Cain is not counted in Adam's genealogy, and why Cain was said to be of the wicked one at 1 John 3.12. And the devil, and a murderer from the beginning, which can only be said of Cain, in John chapter 8. There is no other purely scriptural way to interpret these events and this equation which Jude makes here. There are people who have concocted stories about the nature of Cain's sacrifice. There is nothing in the scripture that, that establishes that that was the actual problem we do see in the scripture that by faith Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain, yes. But Abel was the legitimate sacrificer. And Abel, by faith, made his sacrifice knowing that the priesthood should have been his. There's nothing in scripture that connects Cain to the devil, to that old serpent, except the circumstances of his birth. There is no other purely scriptural way to interpret why the way of Cain is equated to the gainsaying of Korah. Both Cain and Korah attempted to usurp Yahweh's established order, kind after kind, in Cain's case, the reservation of the sacrifices for the family of Eleazar in Korah's. However, we see that Cain also tried to make a sacrifice, which was rejected because Cain was not worthy of making a sacrifice. Boam also attempted to usurp Yahweh's established order. Peter, speaking of these same infiltrators, at 2 Peter 2.15, says that abandoning the straight road they have wandered astray, following in the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who had loved the wages of unrighteousness. The way of Balaam was race-mixing. These men who crept in, these infiltrators into the congregations of the children of Israel, their way is also race-mixing. And they themselves are bastards. Yahweh commanded that the children of Israel be a separate people. Balaam was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the children of Israel. And each time that he attempted, Yahweh forced blessings to proceed from his mouth instead. Upon failing to achieve his purpose, for his wage, Balaam counseled Balak how else he could 
defeat the Israelites. He couldn't curse them, so he came up with an alternate way and taught that way to Balak. And that was by encouraging them to race mix. This is where, in Numbers chapter 25, it is said that Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. From Revelation 2.14, this is from the message to the assembly in Pergamos, and I quote, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those holding the teaching of Balaam, who had taught Balak to put a trap before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit fornication. Those infiltrators from the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Judah but are not, they have been trying to get the white race, the true children of Israel, to race mix ever since. That's their plan against us, and we see that in reality every single day in every white nation. To repeat Jude verse 11, Woe to them because they have gone in the way of Cain, and in deception they pour forth of the wages of Balaam and are destroyed in the disputation of Korah. Jude makes an interesting analogy here. The way of Cain, who was Adamkind's first bastard, leads to the error of Balaam and causes destruction, such as that which resulted from the disputation of Korah. While Korah himself had nothing to do with fornication, he nevertheless sought to set aside Yahweh's order and establish his own. The way Jude has written this verse, one of these things leads to another. The bastardization process, the establishment of an order other than that which Yahweh created, leads to further bastardization, which leads to destruction as a judgment resulting from the corruption of Yahweh's established order. That process of corruption and destruction can be witnessed throughout the Bible and history, starting with the fall of our first parents. Jude 12. These are spots in your feasts of charity, feasting together without fear, tending to themselves, clouds without water being carried away by the winds. At 2 Peter 2.13, the apostle writes of these same infiltrators that they are stains and disgraces, reveling in their deceits, feasting together with you. Wherever you see a Jew, wherever you see a Negro or an Oriental or any other alien, partaking in the fruits of our white nations, you should know that they are spots in our feasts of charity. They are stains and disgraces, reveling in their deceits, feasting together with us. Because it sure as hell isn't going to last. In the same chapter, verse 17, Peter says, these are streams without water and clouds being driven by a tempest. The clouds without water that we see in Jude. The streams without water 
that we see in Peter. They can only be those same broken cisterns of Jeremiah 2.13. A cloud without water is nothing but dust. A broken cistern is empty. Jeremiah 2.13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is done through race mixing. Therefore, the writer of the Proverbs admonishes his son in Proverbs chapter 5, from verse 15 where it says, Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of waters in the streets. Let them be only thine own, and not strangers with thee. In other words, don't race mix. Our race, the white race, is the fountain of Yahweh, the fountain of living waters, the fountain of our God. Let waters, drink waters out of your own cistern and not the waters of the strangers. A broken cistern is one that holds no water. A race-mixed man does not have the Spirit of God. To continue with Jude 12, laid autumn trees without root, twice dead being uprooted. Jude here seems to refer to the parable. The parable of the fig tree at Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, which corresponds to the three and a half year ministry of Christ. And I quote, Then he spoke this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit in it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, it is three years from which I have come seeking fruit in this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down, for why should the land be useless? But answering, he says to him, Master, leave it this year also, until when I should dig around it and cast manure. And so then it may produce fruit in the future. But otherwise, if not, you shall cut it down. And we see that refers to Jerusalem, where Christ found no fruit for three and a half years during his ministry. Being twice dead, as Jude describes them here, being twice dead once they are uprooted, Jude again tells us that these people do not have the spirit of our God. They have no part with us. They are animals. Since resurrection is through the Spirit, if one has not the Spirit, there is no resurrection. Being dead both physically and spiritually, once they die, they are twice dead. To be resurrected, one must be, one must be born with the Spirit. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that a damnic man is born a physical seed and raised a spiritual seed. It is evident that both bodies, the physical and the spiritual, grow out of the same seed. That's why we have life if we are not race-mixed, because our seed is in us. 
because those genetic instructions which Yahweh created us, which the God of creation imparted to us, are intact. And if they're intact, we are not a broken cistern. We have the eternal spirit which God designed us with. The Apostle John also mentions this seed in his first epistle, where he says that each who has been born from of God does not create wrongdoing, does not create sin, because his seed abides in him, and he is not able to do wrong because he has been born from God. 1 John 3, 9, and I'm kind of paraphrasing. Therefore Christ said of those who opposed him, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 27, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, or graves, grave markers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. A sepulchre is the the burial vault itself, or sometimes the casket. They're like beautiful sepulchers. They're pretty on the outside. Walk through a cemetery. They are ornate, beautifully engraved, but they're full of dead men's bones. There's no spirit in them because they are broken cisterns. A broken cistern can't hold water. A broken genetic code cannot hold the spirit which God gave to our race. Jude 13. Stormy waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars, for whom the gloom of darkness is kept forever. Again, 2 Peter 2.17 says the same things of these same people. And I quote, These are streams without water and clouds being driven by a tempest for whom the gloom of darkness is kept. The ideas represented by Jude verses 4 through 13 are found in large part in various places of 1 Enoch. Here I will quote 1 Enoch chapters 15 and 16. It's really not that long. From verse 1, chapter 15. And he answered and said unto me, And I heard his voice. Fear not, Enoch, thou righteous man and scribe of righteousness. Approach hither and hear my voice. And go, say to the watchers of heaven, who have sent thee to intercede for them. You should intercede for men and not men for you. Wherefore have you left the high, holy, and eternal heaven, and lain with women, and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men, and taken to yourselves wives, and done like the children of the earth, and begotten giants as your sons. Here, Enoch is describing what Jude meant when he referred to the angels who left their first estate, the race of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They had the knowledge of good. They had the blessings of God. And they departed. They departed and rebelled and race-mixed. Race-mixing is probably the major crime of that original rebellion. It's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. 
This is who Jude is referring to. And though you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, you have defiled yourselves with the blood of women and have begotten children with the blood of flesh. And as children of men have lusted after the flesh and blood, as those also who die and perish. Therefore have I given them wives so that they might impregnate them and beget children with them, that thus nothing might be wanting to them on earth. But you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life, and immortal for all generations of the world. And therefore I have not appointed wives for you. For as for the spiritual ones of the heaven, in heaven is their dwelling. And now the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth. And on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on earth and evil spirits shall they be called. As for the spirits of heaven, in heaven shall be their dwelling. But as for the spirits of earth which were born upon the earth, on the earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth, and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst, and cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women, because they have proceeded from them. From the days of the slaughter and destruction and death of the giants, from the souls of those whose flesh the spirits having gone forth shall destroy without incurring judgment, thus shall they destroy until the day of the consummation, the great judgment in which the age shall be consummated over the watchers and the godless, yeah, shall they be wholly consummated. And now, as to the watchers, who have sent thee to intercede for them who had been aforetime in heaven, say to them, you have been in heaven, but all the mysteries had not yet been revealed to you. And you knew worthless ones, and these in the hardness of your hearts you have made known to the women, meaning worthless mysteries probably. And through these mysteries, women and men work much evil on earth. Say to them, therefore, you have no peace. Now, whatever we think of one Enoch, or whether we can be assured that the writings of Enoch, which Jude was referring to, are those same writings which we have today, and we do not have that assurance, is immaterial. Whatever we think of one Enoch is immaterial. These ideas which are expressed in Enoch are also often found in Scripture. And an examination not only of that version of Enoch found in the Charles edition, but also the Enoch literature found among the Dead Sea Scrolls helps us to better understand what Jude was referring to, which was also what Peter and 2 Peter was referring to. It is evident that the Enoch literature relates the idea that evil spirits would cause havoc upon the earth. There, is, there it is also evident that demons or evil spirits proceed from the bastard children of race mixing. However, these are not necessarily disembodied spirits. Rather, the Apostle John 
was talking about embodied spirits when he warned in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, and I quote, Beloved, do not have trust in every spirit, but scrutinize whether the spirits are from of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the society in bodies. By this you know the spirit of God. Each spirit which professes, each person, we all have a spirit. Our spirit is of God, for our spirit is of the world. If our spirit is of God, we have eternal life. If our spirit is of the world, we are a bastard, and we don't have any life. We don't have the life we have. We think we may. By this you know, the spirit of Yahweh, each spirit which professes that Yahshua Christ has come in the flesh, is from of Yahweh. And each spirit which does not profess, Yahshua is not from of Yahweh. And this is the Antichrist, whom you have heard that it comes and is already now in society. John is talking about the Edomite Jews and the Canaanite Jews that rejected Christ. They are the Antichrist. They are embodied spirits. They are not disembodied spirits. You are from of Yahweh, children, and you have prevailed over them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in society. They are from of society. And for this reason, from of society they speak, and society hears them. We are from of Yahweh. He knowing God hears us. He who is not from of Yahweh does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. The true children of God are born of God. Bastards are born out of the errors of society, the sins of the world. To use the language of the King James Version, in his epistle, John was making reference to the differences between the true Israelites and the Canaanite Edomite Jews who were and still are the principal but not the only deniers of Christ. The idea has been set forth that perhaps Jude was not quoting Enoch but that the Enoch literature which we have is spurious that it is an extrapolation from the epistle of Jude. While the Enoch literature which we have is certainly not perfect, having been added to and redacted by men on many occasions, this idea that the Enoch literature has been created from Jude is ridiculous. Aside from Charles's edition of One Enoch, which is translated from Ethiopic, believe it or not, those people had actually preserved this writing in some form or another for many hundreds of years. There are the very similar portions of Enoch found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Enoch was actually um, not counted as canon. It, it was argued at the Council of Nicaea that somehow if the revelation were included that Enoch couldn't be because some men argued that they were opposed to one another. 
So we have the revelation and we don't have Enoch. It's a, it's a misfortune that we do not have the original Greek versions of Enoch. It's a severe misfortune. Aside from Charles's edition of Enoch, there were the very similar portions of Enoch found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The authors of those scrolls were demonstrably not Christian. I will establish that here tomorrow night. They seem to have been ignorant of Christianity up to the time that all of the surviving scrolls were written. And plenty of the portions of the writings of, attributed to Enoch were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The scrolls can also be dated with certainty, and I will demonstrate that tomorrow night, to a time before the rebellion, which led up to, this, to the destruction of Jerusalem, which is before 65 A.D., that dating comes from content within the scrolls themselves. Therefore, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Enoch literature could not have been authored based on information from Jude's epistle. The Enoch literature must have existed before Jude wrote. The next verse of his epistle makes it very clear that Jude was indeed quoting from Enoch. Jude 14. And Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied to these, meaning to these, that these infiltrators, that these people who were basically doomed, prophesied to these, saying, Behold, the prince has come with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment against all and to convict every soul for all of their impious deeds, which they committed impiously, and for all of the harsh things which the impious wrongdoers have spoken against him. Jude seems to be referring to Enoch 1.9, and I will read from the Charles edition, And behold, he comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment upon all, and to destroy all the ungodly, and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness, which they have ungodlyly committed, and all of the hard things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. We see what Jude is quoting. It's very clear. It's almost word for word. The differences are accounted for by the differences in translation. Note that Jude calls Enoch seventh from Adam. In Charles's one Enoch, in chapter 60, at verse 8, Enoch is also called the seventh from Adam. In that reckoning, Adam himself does not count Enoch being the seventh from Adam. Therefore, either Cain or Abel, but not both, must be included in this reckoning in order to arrive at seven firstborn males from Adam. And there is no other way to reckon Enoch as seventh from Adam within the confines of Scripture. <clears throat> what can this refer to if it doesn't refer to firstborn males? Seth, replacing the murdered Abel, therefore inherits the rights of the firstborn from Abel. So we have it. One, Abel. Two, Seth. Three, Enos. Four, Canaan. Five, 
Mahala, Mahalaliel, that name's a tongue twister. Six, Jared. Seven, Enoch. And this also demonstrates the exclusion of Cain from his birth, because Seth was a replacement for Abel. And counting, seventh from Adam, we have to count seven firstborn males. Who are we going to include? Are we going to include Cain? Or are we going to include Abel? If we include both, then Enoch is eighth from Adam. If we exclude Abel, then, contrarily from Scripture, we are considering Seth a replacement for Cain. Seth, the Scripture says explicitly, is a replacement for Abel. The truth is that Abel also has to be a firstborn male to be included in this list. Cain was not Adam's son again. Jude 16. These are grumbling murmurers going, up, going in accordance with their own lusts and their mouths speaking excesses, admiring appearances, appearances for the sake of advantage. The Nestle A Land 27th edition, and, and it's, it, it happens in several other places in Jude. The Greek text, which I like to employ, the Nestle A Land Novum Testamentum Greca, edition 27, cites 1 Enoch 5 4 at this very verse, and I quote from Charles But ye, ye have not been steadfast, nor done the commandments of the Lord. But you have turned away and spoken proud and hard words with your impure mouths against his greatness. O ye hard-hearted, ye shall find no peace. And Peter says of them, for uttering excessive vanity, they entice with the licentious desires of the flesh those nearly escaping who are returning to error. Proclaiming for themselves freedom, they become slaves of corruption. For by that which one is overcome to this he is enslaved. Paul and James both warn Christians not to have respect for the status of persons. Where Jude here chastises the infiltrators as admiring appearances for the sake of advantage. We are reminded of the words of Christ himself. We're speaking of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says to the apostles in Matthew chapter 23, and I quote from verse 5, and all their deeds they do, for which to be observed by men. For they broaden their phylacteries, and make great their fringes, and they love the best seats at the dinners, and the first benches in the assembly halls, and the greetings in the markets, and to be called by men, Rabbi. And then, speaking to his Christian followers, but you should not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. And you should not call your father upon the earth, for one is your father, the heavenly. Neither should you be called guides, because one is your guide, the Christ. And he who is greater among you shall be your servant. But whoever should exalt himself shall be humbled, and whoever should humble himself 
shall be exalted. So we see Jude drawing examples and describing the enemy right from the words of Christ, admiring appearances for the sake of advantage. Jude 17, but you, beloved, must be mindful of the words spoken beforehand by the ambassadors of our prince, Yahshua Christ, that they said to you at the end of time, there shall be scoffers going in accordance with their own lusts for impious things. Jude must here be referring to the written warnings of both Peter and Paul, speaking of apostles in the plural, where 2 Peter 3.3 says, and I quote, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers with the scoffing, going according to their own desires. Paul gives a longer warning, where he begins 2 Timothy chapter 3 by saying, Now this you must know, that in the last days grievous times will arise. For men will be narcissistic, they will be in love with themselves. We see this all over our society today. Covetous, arrogant, blasphemous, braggarts, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unhallowed, unaffectionate, implacable, slanderous, intemperate, untamed, without love of goodness, reckless, demented traitors, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of piety, but denying the value of it. And these you must turn away from. From among them are they who get into the houses and captivate simple women, laden with wrongdoing, being led away with various lusts, always learning yet never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. As we proceed through time, we see such behavior more and more frequently, especially in this day and age. Verse 19, these are those making divisions, animals not having the spirit, It was noted at verse 10 and several other times that the subject of Jude's diatribe is still, he's still talking about the same people. The subject is still those, some men who have stolen in. Those of old, having been written about before time for this judgment, godless men, as they are described in verse 4. And we see that Jude means those outsiders who have infiltrated the congregations of Israel. These are those who have always been opposed to our God, and their origins must lie with the Kenites, with the Rephaim, and therefore with the later Canaanites and Edomites who mixed in with them, who mixed their race with the Kenites and the Rephaim and all the others who descended from the so-called fallen angels of Scripture. Jude is the two-seed-line epistle. Jude is the Genesis 3.15 epistle. These are they who have departed from the will of Yahweh. And it is because they are nothing but animals since they do not have the spirit of Yahweh, which our God gave to our Adamic race, they cannot be led by the spirit of Yahweh. Here Jude reinforces what he said of them in verse 10, that they are irrational beasts, 
as Peter also called them, natural, irrational animals. Or in the King James Version, as it says there, brute, natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, which our ancestors failed to do. Since the time of Christ, all of the major and destructive divisions among his people, among the white people of Europe, have their origin with the enemies of our God. The seed of the serpent. While animals cannot emulate Adamic man, sadly, Adamic man often does and certainly can emulate the flesh. From 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. And I, brethren, have not been able to speak to you concerning the spiritual, but concerning the fleshly. Like infants in Christ, I have given you milk to drink, not food. Indeed, you are not able, but still now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. Where among you are rivalry and contention and dissension, are you not fleshly and walk in accordance with man? Later in 1 Corinthians 11:18, Paul informs us that the divisions make manifest the children of God, where he is talking about men of contention, verse 16, and not merely men with minor disagreements. And Paul says, for there must be sects among you, in order that those approved will become evident among you. We do not have to agree with one another, but if we would all agree with the scripture, we would have no contention, and those men of contention would have no place amongst us. So we cannot lose sight of the fact that while we war against the seed of the serpent, we also must resist the temptations of our own flesh. There's no doubt. The animals cannot emulate Adamic man, but Adamic man can certainly emulate the animals. And we see that all the time. We see that all around us. Just go to Detroit and check out some of the Uyghurs, some of the whites acting just like Negroes. It happens. Jude 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in sanctity in your faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, must keep yourselves in the love of Yahweh, accepting the mercy of your Prince Yahshua Christ for eternal life, and indeed have mercy upon those who are hesitating. These words of Jude's are in nature very much like many sayings of Paul's. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks of the necessary unity of the faith, and also of those who make divisions, where he says, and he has given the ambassadors, and the interpreters of prophecy, and those who delivered a good message, and the shepherds, teachers, towards the restoration of the saints for the work of ministering for building of the body of the anointed, meaning the body of Christ, his people, until we all would attain to the unity of the faith and of the acknowledgement of the Son of Yahweh, at man perfected, at the measure of the stature of the fullness of the anointed, in order that we would be infants no longer, being tossed as waves, and carried about in every wind of teaching by the trickery of men, in villainy for the sake of the systematizing of deception, 
the systemization of this deception. But speaking the truth with love, we may increase all things for he who is the head, the Christ, from whom all the body is being joined together and is being reconciled through every stroke of assistance according to the operation of each single part in proportion, the growth of the body creates itself into a building in love. So Jude here sounds very much like Paul. And Jude in verse 18 or verse 17, where he says, be mindful of the words spoken beforehand by the ambassadors of Prince Joshua Christ has evidently read both the epistles of Paul and of Peter and has been impacted by them. That also helps us to date Jude's epistle as being later than those of Paul's and Peter's. Jude's reference to those who are hesitating still to this day reflects how many of our brethren are deceived by the world and cannot find the truth, not until they take the blinders off, or until God takes the blinders off for them. Verse 23, Now some you save, snatching them from the fire. From James 5, 19 and 20, at the very end of his epistle, I will read, My brethren, if one among you should stray from the truth, and one should correct him, You must know that he correcting a wrongdoer from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and shall cover a multitude of errors. Can man save the spirit? No. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to deliver unrepentant sinners among us to Satan for destruction of the flesh. In other words, put them outside the assembly and the enemies of God will see to their judgment. God will use his enemies to judge those people so that their flesh is destroyed. And why does Paul say? He says, so that the spirit may be preserved in the day of Christ. We cannot save each other's spiritual eternal lives. Only God can do that. And he promises us that he has done that. We can save each other's asses here in this world. He who convinces and corrects a sinner into repentance can save his soul from death. In other words, we can, we, we can look out for and admonish and warn our brethren in this life and save them in this life. We aren't going to save them in the next that's already done. That's already done by our God. But some have mercy upon in fear, hating even garments having been defiled by the flesh. The end of Jude 23. We must have mercy upon sinners in fear of failing ourselves. Do not elevate yourselves above your brethren. Paul had written in Galatians chapter 6 at verse 1, and I quote, Brethren, even if a man should already be caught up in some transgression, you, those of the Spirit, restore such a man in the spirit of meekness, 
watching yourself lest also you may be tested. So we should correct our brethren humbly with meekness. Now as for garments having been defiled by the flesh, that seems to be a reference to the soiled clothing of sexual deviance. Jude verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you unfailing and to establish you in the presence of his honor, blameless in great joy. And here Jude's salutation is also reminiscent of some of Paul's statements. Let me read from 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. Now made a prince make you have an excess and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we also for you, for which to establish your hearts blameless in holiness before Yahweh. And from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, But trustworthy is the prince who will establish you and keep you from the wicked. Meaning from these wicked people that Jude is describing throughout this epistle. Jude 25. To Yahweh, our only Savior, through our only Savior. That's important. Through Yahshua Christ, our Prince in honor, majesty, sovereignty, and authority for all the ages, even now and for all eternity, truly. The final passage of Jude is reminiscent of the many prophecies concerning salvation in the Old Testament. Hosea 13, verse 4. Yet I am Yahweh your God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. Isaiah 43.3 For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Jude says, to Yahweh our only Savior. Jude doesn't mean anybody but the children of Israel. Isaiah 49 and I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood, as with sweet wine. And all flesh shall know that I, Yahweh, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So in the very last epistle in the New Testament, we see confirmation that all the so-called Christian churches of the world now deny that salvation has come to the children of Israel. And that Yahweh their God is one God. He is their Savior. That Old Testament God, He is Jesus Christ. He is their God for all the ages, as we see here in Jude. That means He was our God in the Old Testament age, and he is our God in the New Testament age. Judeo-Christianity, dispensationalism, the ideas of an Old Testament God and a different New Testament God. These things and others are all divisions caused by the infiltrators we've just seen explained in Jude. These divisions are caused by the enemies of God and man. These divisions are caused primarily by the Jews, the creators of the world's misfortunes, the perpetuators of the world's lies. They're not alone in the world. 
there are many other enemies of God in the world. But the Edomite Jew is foremost among them. And he is the subject of Jude's epistle. Jude's epistle. There is no doubt. He is the Antichrist in John's epistle. There should be no doubt. Jude's epistle is probably the premier Genesis 3.15 epistle. Because the subject of all of Jude's criticism are those men who have infiltrated, those who have stolen in, which we see in 2 Peter and in Jude 4. That's the context of all of the criti critical statements which Jude makes here. They are all aimed at those men who have stolen in, those of old, having been written about before time for this judgment. Godless men, meaning they have no God. All of their idols are vain. And, and the Jews of today, they claim that they are their own God. The Jews claim that they are their own Messiah. We can see these patterns in history, and we know exactly who Jude is talking about then, and we can extend that behavior to this very day and all throughout our history and see who Jude is talking about today. Two seed-line Christian identity is the only absolutely true Christianity because we believe in both seeds of Genesis 3.15. And I pray that we persuade all of our brethren. Thank you for listening. I will be here tomorrow night with a discussion of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Praise Yahweh, the God of two Israel.